Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Hamm can do serious, and he can do funny. He was hilarious in Bridesmaids. Offer some roadside assistance. Thanks, officer. I can handle it from here on out. I just... I didn't have anyone else to call. I didn't know you were going to show up. That's the problem with cops, Annie. We're just never there when you need us. A cop talks weird. And breathtaking in Mad Men. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. His new movie has a bit of both. It's called Maggie Moore's. That's spelled more, and then a parenthetical S. Why the weird title? Well, Ham plays a small-town police chief who's investigating the murders of two women, and they're both named Maggie Moore. He's on the case with his partner, KB, who is played by the delightful Nick Muhammad, and in this scene, they're trying to puzzle out a connection between a somewhat pathetic sub-shop franchisee named Jay and his wife, who's one of the Maggie Moores. She was found in the desert, killed in a car fire. Well, Jay Moore's into something. Because he's selling no-name chips. It's a breach of the franchise agreement. He has to buy Castle Sub's product. If he buys from Liberty Bell Foods or wherever else, he stiffs corporate out of their money. Either way, what's it got to do with his murdered wife? I do not know. Because you seem really worked up over this. Well, we have a victim who is unable to yield any clues due to her... Crispiness. KB, will you... Sorry, just happens. Don't do any more. <laughs> John Hamm, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Good to be here. Good to be here. I love the idea of you playing uh, slightly grumpy detectives uh, <laughs> who are a little but not entirely flummoxed for the rest of your career. I'm sure that you would love to have a broader career, and I wish you luck with that. Uh, but you and Nick Muhammad in this film are so charming and funny together. I could just watch it all day. Thanks. You know, Nick obviously brings such an affability to everything he does because that's his his lot in life is to be affable. And uh we found kind of found that when we were shooting, we, were, we, were, we knew that there was going to have to be kind of a, a rapport between these two characters, but we didn't really know what it was going to be. And, um, and we were very happy when it sort of settled into this uh, sort of lighthearted, jocular kind of uh, banter, given some of the heaviness of some of the themes of the film. Uh, but, but the characters actually are, you know, they, they're very much um, friends and they take each other in and, and are concerned with one another's, you know, kind of mental health and, and uh, awareness and at all times. And it's a, it's a very nice, real, well-written relationship. 
it seems like a friend's film all around. Did John Slattery, the director, call you to be in it? John did. He he said he had a, a project he was thinking of doing, and would I be interested? And um, obviously, with the caveat that that you know, there's no demand uh, to to do this. You could choose to or not. And I read the script and was like, I actually kind of like this story. I think it's it's well crafted, and and I think John, knowing John's work as a director, not only from working with him on Mad Men, but seeing what he did with his first film, um, God's Pocket, and how he made how he stretched a a dollar very far on that film, um, I knew he had the capacity to make this something interesting, and he has. What's it like to have your friend as your boss? It's nice, you know. It's a it's a nice working environment, you know. Not only did we have each other there to kind of bounce ideas off and and work together on making uh, everything better, um, but we also had you know Tina Fey, who's a pretty serious uh, producer and uh, creator herself, and so she was able to come in and 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 we're all very comfortable with one another. So it was. It, it it took a lot of the a lot of the uh, prep work out of it because it was just already understood. What was an example of an idea that was bounced for the film? What what did the two of you, you and John Slattery, the director, share? Well, uh, here's a good here's a here's a great example. Um, you know, Nick Muhammad had come in and he was gonna he was gonna he had worked on this American accent that he really was gonna uh, play as, as an American guy and we kind of were going back and forth on it and we were like you know it, it just adds a layer of artifice to this that we don't know if we necessarily want what if you tried it and we rehearsed it both ways what if you tried it with your with your natural accent how would that sound and he started doing it in his accent and then his comedic rhythm started kicking in and that was something that we actually found on the day and then we were able to sort of like we were just like well just don't even worry about the accent it's just it's funnier and it's more believable and more real if it's just you um it's it was it was and i i used this example uh to try to convince both john and nick to to do this i was like in bridesmaids we had um chris o'dowd playing for some reason a completely irish person in the middle of wisconsin uh and it wasn't really uh addressed except for by my character when i i lit i say the line that cop talks weird um it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter it's a it's a person who is from another place who sounds this way and as long as you inhabit the character believably uh and and they exist in that in that firmament then then it does it works and it and it worked for nick and for the for the character and for the relationship between the two characters i think that i'm obsessed with the prospect of you as a detective because i loved confess fletch so much <laughs> um i mean i truly one of my favorite comedies of the last 5 years um and i know that it was you know, it was one of those things that was threatened for literal decades by the time you and Greg Matola got to make it. Um, had you read those Fletch books? There's there's like a dozen of them. Yeah. Um, I, like every 14-year-old in 1985, was obsessed with two things, Top Gun and Fletch. And then short, shortly after that, Beverly Hills Cop. But Fletch was a, a big thing i just loved the i love the wryness i love the sense of humor i love his wise ass chevy chase of it all it was just perfect for 1985 and and then that got me down in a pre-internet era 
significantly pre-internet era. You had to go to the bookstores and libraries to find books. Um, I went to the local bookstore and found, oh my God, not only is there more stories, um, there's like, like, as you said, like a dozen more, uh, stories. He goes to Rio, he goes to this one and that one, and he's, he's solving crimes and he's getting into hijinks all over the place. And I, I've read every single one of them and I was like, why aren't they making more of these? And then they made the unfortunate sequel, um, which kind of didn't really work and is awfully problematic now when you watch it. Um, but we we knew that there was a way in to more of these stories. And obviously you didn't nobody wanted to bite Chevy's style um, because he's so uniquely him. And in a lot of ways, those first two movies are more Chevy Chase movies than they are Fletch movies. And we really wanted to, and Greg was really smart and we really wanted to get back to that energy of the novel and, and make it more, um, um, sophisticated and less kind of jokey with wigs and teeth and all the goofy things. Obviously there's still some of that in there, but it's, it's less, uh, of a kind of a set piece. Uh, and we just wanted to tell a, a fun whodunit, and and we, we happened to stumble into a time where those are are considered kind of a fun genre now. We're back into you know with the with the success of Knives Out and and things like that. We we've gotten uh, as a as a society, the the culture has decided those are worthwhile stories to tell again. So fortunately, we have the rights to the rest of them, and hopefully, we're going to get to make some more. We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with John Hamm. So John Hamm had a lot of choices coming out of Mad Men. I mean, it was, I don't know, one of the five or ten greatest television acting performances of all time. But he hasn't always taken the paths that you might expect. John Hamm's latest film is a comic noir called Maggie Moore's. It was directed by his madman pal, John Slattery. You can watch it in theaters and on demand now. You're from St. Louis, and you grew up mostly with your mom when you were um, young in elementary school age. Your parents divorced when you were a toddler. What do you remember about their relationship? Very little. Um, I don't re really remember. I, I think I was two when my mom and dad got divorced. Um, so I don't really remember them being a couple. Um, I, I Anything I remember of them being a couple is probably from pictures. You know, you have those weird things where you're like, I remember that. And you're like, no, you don't. You just saw the picture. Um, yeah, I have really no, you know, recollection. And then having lost my mom when I was 10 and my father when I was 20, I didn't really get a lot of chances to kind of have those adult conversations with your parents. Like, what was it like? What did you, where did you meet? How did you meet? It was all kind of secondhand through either other family members or, or family friends. Um, so it was, it was a strange process of kind of learning about my parents as I got older through this sort of remembered history from other people. When they were both alive, what was their relationship like when you were a kid? Um, you know, my mom was a, a single mom and she was a working mom. So she went to work every day and I was a latchkey kid. I had my little keys on a, on the, literally a, a thing that clipped to my, um, belt buckle. 
Like a night yeah. watchman or something? The kind that it, that it like extends and No, it wasn't that. It no, was okay. a, it was a it was a very cool, I think it was called like a gene ring or something, but it it was like a little bent piece of metal that looked like a little bit like a pretzel and you could you could latch it onto your um uh belt loop. But I would come home every day if if I have either Cub Scouts or bowling or some sort of after school activity and come home after that and call my mom at work. Um and check in. I'm home. Everything's cool. And then I went to, it was like I was a free range kid. I just ran around and we found the kids in the neighborhood and we played whatever sport was that season. If it was fall, it was football. If it was spring, it was baseball. And, you know, and then there was frisbee and snowball fights and everything else. And that was kind of my, those are my days. And then every other weekend I would go uh, to my dad's. Uh, and that was just kind of a different, you know, we'd, he would have, stuff to do we would go to the zoo or we would go to something a game or something and and um i don't know you know not having anything else really to compare it to it just felt totally fine that was just what it was um i enjoyed i enjoyed spending time with both of them you know it was it was fun but we're not talking about you being a latchkey kid at 13 or 14 or something we're talking about like eight or nine. Oh yeah yeah i was in you know grade school it was a uh, second and third fourth grade my mom died when i was in fourth grade did you have other kids families that you spent time with oh yeah for sure um and in fact as i got older um several of my my close friends became de facto parents um um my friend um john simmons who who i grew up with who's the best man at my wedding and you know he's like my best friend since we were 12 years old um his mom and dad and then my friend jim wilson his mom and dad you know my friend uh preston clark his mom and dad my friend bob lawson you know it's i i've stayed in a lot of couches and basements <laughs> uh and was taken care of very kindly by the community that that i grew up in and i don't take that um for granted and i'm very grateful for that as well i understand that that could have that could have split a very different way uh and i've i was very fortunate to have good people around me and um that that were able to sort of gently nudge me down the right path you obviously ended up living with your father and the rest of his family after your mother passed away but you know, there can be this feeling, and it's a feeling I'm describing from my own life, so you can tell me if it wasn't one that, that you had, of being a visitor in your own home. And I don't mean neglectful or not loved or whatever. I What I really mean by that is that you have these multiple experiences of home and so there is always kind of for ill and for good a feeling of having half a foot out the door or a little bit of not quite belonging for sure and and it was it was kind of amplified with my experience too because moving into my when my mom died in that sort of seismic occurrence in my life it was obviously there was a lot to be managed but also i had to move in with my dad who at that time in his life was living in the house that he grew up in with his mother so i was we were three generations under one roof it was 
I was living in a, a you know, a home that I I had really uh, identified with my my grandmother much more than my dad. I was living in a room that didn't feel like a kid's room. You know, it was just there was a lot to it that needed to be managed. <laughs> um, and in, in a lot of ways, it was awesome. You know, it was this kind of old stately house that had a lot of stuff in it. You know, we had a, a wall of, of uh, National Geographics that I could go look at, you know, from the 40s to the 80s. Like, it was just very cool. Um, and, and a bunch of old, you know, antique stuff that I, God, I wish I had now, but it all went to the dissipated to the four winds after everybody died. But it was very much a kind of a musty old home and it and it and it and you're right it did it it felt like being a visitor in a lot of ways and and that again that's just what it was you know part of me was found my community in uh, the school I went to and my friends and sports and all of the activities that I participate in and ultimately theater and what I ended up doing for a living what sports were you playing when you were in your in your teen years I, I played baseball and football, and I swam. Those are my three varsity sports. Did you like hitting people in football? You know, I will say that that was a very good thing <laughs> for me. Um, it, from an energy standpoint, from a release standpoint, from a, um organizational standpoint, like football provided me. And I was very fortunate. I didn't get injured. I didn't have any concussions. I didn't blow up my knee or anything nothing bad happened to me which which obviously there's a lot of caveats to all of that now um but for me it was it was just a tremendous way to really um get rid of a lot of the energy that i accumulated as a you know young boy growing up you also started acting as a teenager um and I wonder if you got a different thing out of acting than sports. It was a similar thing. The similar thing was the community, um, you know, and, and I would, I would, I would say that, you know, most, most people that end up in the theater department are a little bit broken too. Sometimes um, it's the Island of misfit toys in some way. Um, and I, I always, I always used to joke. It's like the reason everybody goes to the theater department is because there's no math requirement. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is a, it's a very welcoming community. It's a very inclusive community, obviously. And it's it 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 takes everybody. You know, come on, we'll you know, put on some paint and let's let's enjoy the show. And it's also very much a cooperative effort too. So you know, you help break down the set and you help do the thing and you help in any way you can. And, and, and along the way you learn and you learn how to be dependable. You learn how you learn a skill set, and it's entertaining. And that's, you know, if you have that itch, it's tremendously satisfying. And it's, and it's, that's for me at a certain point, I pretty much understood, okay, I, I'm a, I'm a good enough athlete, but I'm not good enough to make a living out of this. And I, I knew enough, athletes and professional athletes and people that were on their way like oh you're you're a quantum leap ahead of me on my best day so it was about trying to figure out what i could do and 
I kept kind of coming back to the theater and I kept doing plays and performances and things and and I got good feedback. People were saying, "Hey, I liked you in this. You're 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 watchable. You're entertaining. This is good. You're good at this." And I enjoyed it. So after, you know, 5 or 6 years of that, I I've decided, "Well, maybe I've got a a shot at this." And um and I and I did and it and it stuck. Was it weird that you were a handsome jock? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it's there's plenty. I'm here, John. I'm going to stipulate that you're <laughs> handsome and a jock, so that you don't have to claim either of those things. But let's presume that others also thought, thought that you were a handsome jock, at least in part. Was it weird? I think there's you know there's plenty of room in in uh, under the tent for all of us. And uh, and the fun thing about my kind of theater education, at least at the beginning in high school was that everybody was invited. It wasn't just the theater kids. It wasn't just the nerds. It wasn't just the, you know, whatever. We were all asked to participate. It wasn't a demand, but it was like, look, this is fun. You guys might enjoy this. So the football players got to do it too. And and some were better than others and some liked it more than others. But it was, it was, um, it was an open invitation. And that's what I really appreciated about my school in general was you were encouraged to try everything. And if you didn't like it, eh, you don't have to do it anymore, you know, uh, but you had to try everything. And that was singing and dancing and public speaking and improv and, and painting and sculpting and along with, you know, the sort of STEM uh, classes as well. But, but it was, that was to me what an educational experience should be. Try. Did you really think that you could become a professional actor? I mean, I wouldn't have moved to L.A. and tried if I didn't think I could have. Um, I did have the um, stupidity, maybe is the right word, um, ignorance, whatever, belief that I had a shot. I thought, all right, I'm confident enough to know that if I get in the room – in the right room in front of the right people, I got a shot. And, and that was, and I, I, I had a lot of shots before I got, you know, before one stuck. Um, and, and it, and, and it's, a, it was a lesson, you know, you learn, wow, this is, I'm not the only guy that has this confidence and, and thinks he's got a shot. There's a, you know, walking into a casting office, especially back in the nineties when it was a little more analog, um, was an experience of like walking into a room of 10 guys that look just like me and nine of them have uh, more credits and, and you know, have, have done it longer. So you go, okay, you know, let's, let's see what happens. You know, let's see what this is all about. It also wasn't really, by the time you became a professional actor, a golden age for handsomeness. Um, it was more of a golden age for, I mean, for masculine ha- ha- handsomeness, it was more of a golden age for masculine prettiness, um, especially for young men like you were. Like, you had this extraordinary <laughs> gift that you'd been handed besides your skill and talent, um, and it was, like, not the most useful one. Like, George Clooney had gray hair before he got famous. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I, I definitely was on that track much more than the other one. Um, I I remember going into so many auditions in that era, which again, 
you're correct in identifying it was sort of the like CW world of of 25 year olds that are playing teenagers and i i didn't look like a teenager when i was a teenager really it was like i just i had a heavy beard and bags under my eyes and whatever i just didn't have the gray hair um but the experience of growing into my my uh my looks and my attitude was certainly something that took a minute and then when you know when the right when the right role came along which it did with with don draper it sat on me and it and it felt it felt very natural and it and it resonated very clearly we've got so much more with the great john ham stay with us it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr all right class tomorrow's exam will cover the extinction and de-extinction of the dodo powerpoint as an art form and the history of eurovision any questions uh yes you in the back uh what is this it's the podcast let's learn everything where we learn about science and a bit of everything else my name's Tom. I study cognitive and computer science, but I'll also be your teacher for intermediate emojis. My name's Caroline, and I did my master's in biodiversity conservation, and I'll be teaching you intro to things the British Museum stole. My name's Ella. I did a PhD in stem cell biology, so obviously I'll be teaching you the history of fan fiction. Class meets every other Thursday on Maximum Fun. So do I still get credit for this? <laughs> no. <laughs> obviously not. No. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with John Hamm. He's starring in the new movie, Maggie Moores. You did um, 65-ish episodes of a Lifetime show before Don Draper, but that was 65-ish episodes over something like, I, I was trying to like do the math. It was like two and a half years or something. Yeah, yeah. They must have been really pumping them out. Yep. Um, and before that, you know, you had, you worked sometimes, but I can't imagine that your working was your main job. So my main did job you, was, was waiting tables. That was my main job. Did you sure. have an idea of how long you were willing to do that and work a couple times a year as an actor? I had given myself, I moved out to LA when I'm 24 turning 25. And I thought, okay, if I'm not making a living doing what I'm stating that I want to do professionally by, by the time I turn 30, uh, then the market has spoken and we can go find something else to do. So I ended up, t the, the, the show you mentioned was called, uh, the division on lifetime. Um, I got that part in, uh, 2001. Um, it was, I think I was going, it was right after 9-11, in fact, so I was going back to start that job right after 9-11. But I had turned 30 on a on a, a movie, and it was um, a movie called We Were Soldiers. It was uh, Mel Gibson and, and Sam Elliott and a bunch of amazing actors, and it was a great movie and a great experience. And so that was when I basically was able to quit my job, and I was... I was making, I, I got in right under the wire, but I was, I was making, um, I was making good money, uh, doing what I wanted to do. And, uh, I take it back. I, I, that was when I did, I did the division before I did, we were soldiers. I think I can't remember, but, um, anyways, it was, um, 
it was the, it, I got in under the under the five year wire. I, I was auditioning in L.A. for three solid years with zero results, um, which is not to say that I didn't have any uh, callbacks or almost. Uh, that was all that it was. I I got so close to a million different things that had any one of them hit, my life would have looked very different. But they didn't for whatever reason, and then all of a sudden. They did. And in fact, I worked on, when I worked on the division, I worked opposite, um, a, a phenomenal actress named Tracy Needham, whose, um, husband, uh, is a guy named Tommy Hinckley, another, uh, great actor. And his best friend is George Clooney. <laughs> so, uh, Tracy used to say to me all the time, she's like, you're just like George. You're when you're you know, look catches up to what they want you for. Once you hit it's, 33. It, it's all it, 35, she said to me. And I was like, God, your lips to God's ears. And <laughs> I got Mad Men at 35. If you were, when you were 29 and you hadn't gotten, I'm making up the timeline here because I'm not prepared to do the math. But when you were 29 and you hadn't gotten the division yet, you were just working in something every once in a while. And you were you know, waiting tables or at one point, I, I think, shucking oysters. Um, were you serious about that deadline? Like, I'm sure you were serious about it at 24 when you moved to L.A. I think I was. I mean, you know, I think, I, you know, I had, I had worked in the, in the industry uh, long enough and seen enough examples of the 40-year-old, quote-unquote, actor who does two jobs a year and is, you know, has five lines on Moesha or whatever. And it's, it was not a life that I wanted. I, if I was pushing myself forward in that timeline, I could definitely tell that that's not, that was not for me. So, you know, how that would have represented, would I have moved back to St. Louis? Would I have gotten another job in LA somewhere? I don't know how that would have presented itself, but I, I was pretty sure that had I, not had the success, at least the tangible kind of success that feels like, okay, we're on, we're on the, the, the treadmill and we're moving. Um, if, if that hadn't presented itself, I think I definitely would have said like, okay, it's time to reevaluate. You went in a bunch of times for Mad Men, um, in part because I'm sure that there were producers on the show who would like their lead to be a famous person. Did you believe that you could or would get the part? Yeah, I did believe it. Um, but I was enough. I had been around long enough to know that there were a hundred million other reasons why they would say no. And so my job was to just be undeniable and, and not let them say no. And I was able to do that. You know, I, I came in over prepared, hyper ready. I'll do it five different ways. I knew the material cold. I knew I looked the part and I knew that Matt Weiner, the creator of the show really wanted me. And I knew also that unlike most of these pilots where having a, a star at the center of them is a, is value added. The mystery of casting somebody that wasn't recognizable was helpful in the narrative of the story. This guy 
as we come to find out, is not who he says he is. And so that was, it was helpful to have that person being played by somebody who you kind of knew. Maybe you'd seen him before in something, but not really. Um, instead of it being Rob Lowe, you know, and it, oh, it's a Rob Lowe project. Um, and I just use that as a, as a person that people know. Um, nothing against Rob. He's a phenomenal actor. Good and everything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that eventually the powers that be uh, understood that. And they, they were able to say, oh, maybe it would be cool if we got this guy who's a little bit unknown. Do you have an ideal shape for your career? Like you have spent a lot of time doing silly, dilettantish comedy stuff. You know, you've like shown up in a lot of comedy buddies things to do some goofing around a little bit. Uh, you have Fletch that I would be thrilled to have as our as Columbo. Like I would be delighted if you just did a, a Fletch every 18 months and it ran on CBS and I got to watch it. Um, until you were 90 years old. <laughs> uh, or, you know, you could do a, a new prestige television program, or you could be military dudes in movies or presidents <laughs> in movies. You know, the movies always need that. I, um, you know, just having worked with, with my dear friend, Mr. Slattery, on this particular film, um, part of, if there's any design to this of what we get to do because we're fortunate enough to have some say in the matter is picking things that I enjoy in some way, shape or form, whether they make me laugh or cry or interest me in some way, or I think I have a, an angle on them. And I think John Slattery feels the same way. You know, the reason he picked this story to to direct and directing a movie, it's a three-year process. It's a year of prep. It's a year of shooting. It's a year of editing. Then you have to promote the thing and take it to festivals. And if it's not a, you know, a universal picture that's got a Roman numeral at the end of it and Vin Diesel involved, it's, it's hard to make movies. Um, so you do it because it's something that you really like. And this story and, and the fact that I got to work with people that I really liked – uh, was the reason I, I chose to do it. Um, and I'm very, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm very grateful I get the opportunity to choose, but I'm also very um, uh, understanding that that I'm trying, we're trying to entertain people. You know, we want it to be entertaining. So we want people to come along for the ride. And, and part of that is is uh, hopefully what I can bring to the table and, and, uh, and, and bringing everybody along. Well, John Hamm, I'm grateful for your time. I hope you'll come back again sometime. Um, and I'm grateful that there is someone as as talented and hardworking as you who made the choice that I would have made, which is to use uh, whatever cultural capital one had accumulated in one's career to weasel your way onto 30 Rock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Between Thirty Rock and SNL, I, I'm I'm good. If I never did anything else, I'm I'm pretty good there. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Nice talking with you. The great John Hamm. You can catch him in the new movie Maggie Moore's. That's in theaters and streaming on demand now. And hey, look, I know that <laughs> I know that I dedicated like a third of this interview to Confess Fletch, which is a movie that came out last year. But 
I cannot tell you how great Confess Fletch is. Please go watch Confess Fletch so that they'll make like eight more of those. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where here on my block, a giant branch from a eucalyptus tree fell uh, from, uh, you know, the sidewalk, the curb, into my neighbor's yard yesterday. It was blocking the whole walkway. And somehow it was pointed the wrong way, like the broken off part was pointing towards his house and the not broken off part was pointing the opposite way towards uh, the curb and the street. And I don't know how that's possible. It was a huge branch. Like what turned it around? Did it pirouette in the sky like a high diver? Our world is full of mysteries. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Senior producers Kevin Ferguson. Our producers Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It is called Huddle Formation. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places. Follow us. We will share with you all of our interviews. I think that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.